There aren't many places where you can hear leading lights of astronomy like meteorite expert Monica Grady, Stephen Hawking collaborator John Ellis, and astronomer royal Martin Rees debating the cutting edge of space science today. But how the light gets in festival is one of them. Coming to the gorgeous town of Hay on Wai from the 22nd to the 25th of May, the festival will gather the world's top scientists in astronomy and physics, alongside renowned philosophers, headline-making politicians, and beloved artists for four days of debates and talks. Early bird tickets are available for a short time at howthelightgetsin.org. Meanwhile, you can listen to a wealth of debates on everything from Martian exploration to the nitty-gritty of particle physics on How the Light Gets In official podcast, Philosophy for Our Times. It's available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Acast and all good platforms. Or find out more at iai.tv. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings listeners, it's time for the February episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. Production editor Neil McKim. Hello. And staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to John Strachan, who was one of the organisers of a competition which sought to name over 100 exoplanets. And we'll be giving you our stargazing tip of the month. Um... There's already been one major uh, event in the astronomer's calendar that's happened this month, something that a lot of people look forward to, and that's the Insight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year Awards opening up. Um, I know that we've really uh, enjoyed, we, we re- always really enjoy um, yeah. taking part in this, this, this competition. It's Mm. Good fun for us. We helped to to actually take part in the judging panel as well. So yes, our our art editor Steve Marsh uh, is one of the judges who helps uh, decide who's going to be the winner every year. Yes, that's right. It's always a great day, isn't it, um, to go down there and have a look at the gallery, um, which for the first time this year was down in the actual National Maritime Museum at the bottom of the hill, mm-hmm. um, rather than being in the smaller space in the um the royal observatory which is the top of the hill um but it's a it's a they've done a great job with the um with the gallery it's a it's a wonderful space um as well as the kind of backlit um light box images of all the winning images there's videos as well of the that they've made with the um uh, uh photography uh photographers who who won the competition so it's a great great thing to visit and uh, if you want to stand your chance uh, to be in in that gallery in 2020 um, then pick up the february issue of bbc sky at night magazine where we give you all of the details about how to enter but for now we're going to be looking at one of the other big space anniversaries we covered in this month's magazine Um, on the 18th of february it will be 90 years since clyde tombug first discovered pluto so in this episode we thought we'd take a deeper look into this not quite planet yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really intrigues me about the discovery of Pluto is Clyde Tombaugh's story himself, because it's really a story of humble beginnings. Um, Clyde Tombaugh was born in 1906 to this uh, Illinois farming family, um, and they moved, they moved to Kansas. And basically, one year, uh, a hailstorm ruined the family crops, um, so they couldn't afford to send um, young uh, Clyde Tombaugh to university. But nevertheless, he got interested in uh, looking up at the night sky and uh, age 20, he built his first telescope, started learning how to grind mirrors and build more telescopes. And his life really changed when he started sketching um, 
and observing Mars and Jupiter because he sent his sketches to the uh, Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, and was subsequently given a job as as, as an assistant uh, and groundskeeper in 1929. Um, but while he was there, he became involved in the search for Planet X, which was this uh, supposed planet beyond the orbit of Neptune. And it was really a means to describe irregularities in Uranus's orbit. Um, there was this kind of uh, theory that there must be this other planet causing these irregularities, um, predicted by uh, Percival Lowell, among other astronomers, um, after whom the Lowell Observatory uh, was named. But basically, yeah, there, uh, uh, Clyde Tomba started using this, um, started using the 13-inch uh, astrograph that was at Lowell Observatory and was taking uh, images of the same section of sky over different nights and using this uh, machine called the Blink Comparator where you get um, two images um, separated by uh, a few seconds in time or a few minutes, and you're basically looking for an object that appears to be moving over the different plates. So you can kind of go between panel A and panel B, and you look at, because obviously the background stars remain the same, Mm. but any closer objects will appear to move. And yeah, he noticed uh, an object that was moving, and they were able to use the calculate the speed of it and work out that it was probably a trans-Neptunian object, although they then subsequently worked out that it didn't have the mass to cause the necessarily, you know, um, calculations to explain Uranus's um, irregularities. So it was a bit of a coincidence. They were looking for something else and instead they found Pluto. But yeah, it's still a pretty cool story. If you mm. if you look hard enough into the depths of space, you'll eventually find something. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've used one of those blink com- comparator things before and it, it's that sort of, you, you definitely get that little thrill when you sort of suddenly see something moving um, in the background, having especially if you've been at it for hours trying to find one of these things. So mm. I can't imagine what it must have been like to have found that finally. I think the um, the story is a, a great advert for the benefit of boredom, <laughs> because um, it was it was it was repetitive work for that on the blink comparator, wasn't it? And also he wasn't he was um, aiming the telescope and actually taking the pictures at the same time. So um, when he was taking the pictures, he had to keep um, the you know it focused and and he had to keep the star one star in the field of view to keep it tracking mm-hmm. right. Um, uh, so that was all boring work, but not as boring, not as mundane as as the grounds work that he was doing. <laughs> uh, it was his day job. So, you know, he saw it as a welcome departure, his actual yeah. telescope work and the search for Pluto and was all the more driven in his search. Yeah, because apparently his, his work involved things like uh, scraping the snow off the observatory domes and things like that. <laughs> oh my God, so he's yeah. probably like, can I come in out of the cold and look for, look <laughs> yeah. for, uh, look for a new planet? Uh, yeah. Hooray for automation and, and computer software. That's all yeah. I can say. <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, a- after uh, Clyde Tomba found Pluto, he kind of, um, I suppose that kind of propelled him into the into the astronomical limelight, so to speak, and uh, he subsequently got a degree in astronomy from the University of Kansas and taught at the New Mexico State University. And then he kind of, uh, I think he went basically went back uh, every now and then to Lowell and, and kind of kept... Uh, looking and discovered asteroids and um, you know variable stars and things like that. You know, and he kind of realised his dream of being a professional astronomer. Um, p- passed away in uh, January uh, nineteen ninety seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, his I, I guess his memory lives on. But um, the one of the one of the really interesting things about Pluto is the uh, story of how it was named because it's actually quite uh, actually quite an, an unlikely source. 
um, its, its name, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I've been looking into that, and it was named by an eleven-year-old girl from Oxford. Obviously, uh, yeah. unlikely, <laughs> unlikely naming. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the story is: well, she was interviewed by NASA in two thousand and six um, when she was eighty-seven, just before the New Horizons launch, um, and her name was Venetia Burney, uh, later Bernie Fair. And she was asked why she chose the name. And she didn't quite know why, but she distinctly recalled the scene. And she was having breakfast with her grandfather. And he read the story out from the newspaper that they were looking for a name for this new planet that had been discovered. And she recalled saying, why not call it Pluto? Um, after the god of the underworld. Um, and her grandfather, he was... Falconer Madden, a retired head librarian at Oxford's Bodleian Library, and he passed a note with her suggestion to Herbert Hall Turner, director of Oxford University's observatory, who then cabled a telegram to the Lowell Observatory. So her suggestion got all the way over there, and they clearly thought it was a great idea, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, they named it after her suggestion. and it also conveniently, the first two letters are also the initials of Percival Lowell, the founder of the Lowell Observatory. Mm-hmm. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just such a nice story. And I, I, I just love the idea of um, this little girl kind of sitting having breakfast and someone asks her to name a planet. And, you know, she comes up with like, why not the god of the underworld? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> Roman, uh, Roman yeah. god of the underworld, which yeah. I've been studying in my, uh, in my class recently. And the fact that they were then able to get that, you know, information, you know, it's not not, not, not like they could just kind of email uh, NASA, mm. you know, in those days, obviously, you know, mm. they were able to get the information. And uh, so the fact they had to telegram it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, um, Pluto is the name has kind of come, gone on into popular culture, hasn't it? Um, helped yeah. a lot by um, Walt Disney, who was said to have been inspired by by the planet's name when he introduced Mickey Mouse's um, canine companion in in 1930, the same yeah. year as it was discovered. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was she was actually keen to point out that Disney's Pluto was named after the planet. Yes, yeah. It's a bit it's a bit of a strange name for a dog if it wasn't for the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. name my dog after the god of the underworld. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's right. Uh, and for for many years, the Pluto remained uh, this remote object uh, in the distant uh, solar system that we could barely see. Um, you, you know, point of light on a on a photographic frame. Uh, but that changed in uh, 2015 when New Horizons flew past it. Uh, there's been plans to send a mission to Pluto for for decades. Um, originally, the two Voyager probes were actually going to fly past Pluto, um, but they decided in the end that they would have to make too many compromises to make that work. So they just decided to stick to the four gas giants. Um, but they carried on with this idea of sending a probe and uh, launched New Horizons on the 19th of January 2006. It then took another nine years to get to Pluto. Um, and it came within 12,500 kilometres of the planet on the 14th of June 2015. Uh, 
I remember sitting in the office watching the pictures as they came in. Um, it was it was that sort of Pluto's one of these these worlds that ha- kind of captured people's imagination a bit, possibly because it was the only world world we hadn't seen, the only big body of the solar system that we hadn't mm. seen up close. So when it was these pictures came in, it was kind of quite thrilling to see it. Um, yeah, it was that that heart shaped region. Just uh, yes. so cool. Mm. Uh, Sputlik Planitia, that's yeah. called. Um, and this that was actually one of the, the strangest things about this planet, um, about this uh, dwarf planet, I should say. Um, it Everybody was expecting it's this cold lump of ice on the outskirts of the solar system. Everybody was expecting it to be this like completely dead world. And it wasn't. Um, that, Sput- that Sputnik Planitia, that white heart that you see on Pluto, is incredibly smooth. Mm. And that means that something is covering over the surface. It had a very young surface. Um, Sputnik Planitia was actually also the, the largest known glacier in the solar system. It's about a thousand kilometers across. And it was just people suddenly realized that even on the outskirts of our solar system, there's still a huge amount of activity going on. There's still things changing and evolving um, over time. The the solar system certainly isn't dead anywhere you look. Um, there was a couple of other uh, interesting things they found. Uh, there's suggestions that Pluto could have a liquid ocean beneath its crust. Um, so that was quite interesting. They also had a look, uh, New Horizons took a look at Pluto's moons. Um, they appear to have been created at the same time as Pluto. So whatever created Pluto also created its moons. Um, but there was also something very strange they saw on Charon, which is uh, sometimes pronounced Sharon, sometimes pronounced Charon, um, which is the largest moon of Pluto, which is almost the same size as it. Um, and that had a dark red cap, um, which they believe was uh, something called tholins, which is an organic material. And they think actually what's happened is it's been stealing the atmosphere of Pluto um, mm. and, and getting this sort of red uh substance all over its its pole. Mm. Yeah, because you also see that, that red substance on Pluto itself, don't you? Like mm. the, the outline of the heart is, is red. Yeah. It's the same, it's yeah, the they, same have, they have, well, they have, they, they think it possibly is, is the same substance. Um, it's also, whilst that makes the, the surface red, it's also makes uh, Pluto's atmosphere slightly blue. Um, it's amazing. That <laughs> it has an atmosphere, you know. I mean, yeah. You know, so worlds like our moon. Yeah. Don't have a don't you know have a, have less of an atmosphere. It's yes, it's one of only four planets which have uh, four worlds which has a majority nitrogen atmosphere. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a there's a beautiful Earth uh, and Titan. New Horizons image and um, it shows Pluto's blue haze and it's just a mm. black circle and the black circle is made by the outline of this gorgeous blue haze. It looks it looks really really amazing. Yeah. It's it was it's a stunning like stunning pictures yeah. from mm. Pluto, and I think that was one of the things that really struck me was just how beautiful this yeah. planet named after the god of the dead is. Didn't the New Horizons yeah. spacecraft carry Clyde Tumba's ashes on it board? It did. It carried a very small yes. vial of his ashes, um, which people thought I think I certainly think is a fitting tribute yeah, um, to the man. He never got to see the flyby himself. He mm. died, you know, ten years before it even launched. Mm. Um, when it was still an idea on the drawing board. So the fact that he got to to visit um, Pluto in some small way, I think, is quite mm. charming. Yeah, one of the really, uh, one of the, the kind of 
tidbits I really like about uh, New Horizons is that when it launched, Pluto was a planet. And when it arrived, Pluto was a dwarf planet. It's because that, that demotion had happened, mm. uh, you know, um, during during its journey. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that demotion happened in um, uh, 2006. Um, but it was the, that was one, just one um, chapter in a, in a long story of, in the search and discovering characterization of, of Pluto and, and really the region um, in the outer solar system, which kind of goes back to, well, if you trace it right back, it goes right back to the discovery of um, Uranus and uh, Neptune um, and the um, and the observation that these 19th century astronomers made that their orbits weren't quite right. There was a little bit of a discrepancy in the orbit. Um, it was there were planets were in slightly the wrong place um, according to where they should be according to um, Newtonian dynamics and and the gravitation of the planets. So um, uh, it was it was. Um, Percival Lowell kind of took up this this quest to discover what was causing this irregularity in these in the orbits of um, Uranus and Neptune, and he and he proposed Planet X um, at the end of the nineteenth century um, to explain the inconsistencies. And you, as you said earlier, Ian, and he assumed that Planet X would be large and low density, like a giant planet like Saturn or Jupiter and um, it'd have a similar brightness. So he was searching it for a for a disk with a diameter of about one arc second and um something that was bright enough to be spotted. And so um you know when when um uh when Clyde Tombaugh found Pluto in 1930, um you know very it, straight away they said, "Oh, we found Planet X," but astronomers were were never really sure that Pluto was Planet X. And it, actually, just um, a couple of months after the discovery, some um, astronomers were were writing in in newspapers in the New York Times. They ran a story that um, you know, Pluto couldn't be a planet; it was it was more like an asteroid and the orbit like an asteroid because they could characterize its orbit even in 1930. Um, and they thought it was more like an asteroid than a comet. And then in the decades following the discovery in 1930, um, the uh, people were able to kind of define some characteristics of Pluto a little bit more clearly. So um, its its mass, the mass estimates kept coming down for Pluto. Um, initially, when it was discovered, they, kept, they thought its mass was... Um, would be roughly Earth-like. Um, and then it was revised down to the mass of Mars in 1948. And then it had its albedo or its reflectivity calculated for the first time. Uh, and when they did that, they found that it matched, uh, it had a similar brightness to methane ice, meaning that Pluto had to be exceptionally luminous for its size. And so it couldn't be more than 1% of the mass of Earth. So it came went right down mm. um, the mass then and then when pluto's moon i'm going to call it charon <laughs> when it was when charon was discovered in 1978 it was finally possible to measure the actual mass of pluto um and when they did that they found it to be roughly 0.2 percent of earth's mass and um at that point it was it, they they knew it was far too tiny to affect the orbit of uranus um and so there that didn't stop the search of pl- for planet x um but these days, most astronomers agree that Planet X, as kind of um, Percival Lowell proposed, doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, following on from the 1978, um, the, the, when they um, that kind of when they were actually um, able to 
measure the mass. Um, uh, Pluto's status got called more into question, more and more into question when they when astronomers discovered several objects of a similar size further out in the Kuiper belt. And in 2005, um, astronomers discovered Eris, a dwarf planet um, in the outer Kuiper belt, which is 27% more massive than Pluto. Um, and that was kind of the death knell for Pluto as a planet. Um, and on the back of this, um, the International Astronomy Union set up a working group to, to actually define the term planet, which had never been done before. Mm. Um, and they came up with a with um, with the definition, um, formally adopted it in two thousand and six. And one of the one of the out- outcomes of that was um, Pluto was um, excluded uh, from from the planetary status and reclassified as a dwarf planet. Um, but that's not to say there aren't other objects out in the far reaches of the Kuiper belt um uh you know even though planet x isn't is no more um many more actual um dwarf planets have been discovered albion sedna quaor hormea uh, and my personal favorite maki maki <laughs> <laughs> some fantastic names yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 i think isn't hormea the uh, spinning rugby ball yes that's it's right like a four hour day or something yeah, like yeah. That. a really odd shape yeah yeah yeah, um, and there's also been a revival of the um, hypothetical planet in the outer solar system um, in Planet Nine. Uh, this is, and this has been inferred from gravitational effects, and it could help explain the clustering of groups of bodies beyond Neptune. Uh, and plan- they reckon Planet Nine could be about five to ten times the the mass of Earth, so a kind of super Earth type planet, and and in an orbit four hundred to eight hundred times the Earth Sun distance. So, uh, uh, you know, a whopping distance away. Yeah. As it, you think that it's the solar system, we should know it really well. Mm. And then, because I think I, sometimes, especially I forget how far away these things are. I think it's like billions and billions of kilometres away. Yeah, um, hmm. And you're looking for one tiny point of light that you need a really powerful telescope to pick up yeah. in the entire vastness of space and you need to see it moving. It's yeah. it's miracle we find anything the out chances right? are just minuscule aren't they when you're searching for the, yeah. the area of sky unless unless you know where you're looking yeah yeah absolutely it's kind of mostly chance yeah i mean the, the uh, pluto planet debate's really interesting in itself isn't 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 wasn't the one definition that it didn't meet up to wasn't it that pluto doesn't clear its own orbit yes it's Is so there's, it yes, there's three right. criteria i believe it has to go around the sun Mm, rather okay. than going around something that goes around the sun. Yeah. Um, it has to be large enough to pull itself into a sphere, Check. which is yes. about 1,000 kilometres wide. That starts mm, happening. Mm. Um, and it needs to be big enough to clear its own orbit of debris. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's one that is a lot, some people still find a bit controversial because yeah. technically Jupiter hasn't cleared its orbit. Mm. There's um, the Trojan asteroids Trojan. caught in its its gravitational well. Mm. Um and so it's kind of one of those big questions of, of what does that actually... So they, they've, they've made this definition, but still people don't agree with it. And I'm sure there'll be arguments about it for, for decades to come. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the jury's still out on Planet Nine, but we have found thousands of planets around other stars. And at the end of last year, the International Astronomical Union held an international competition for members of the public across the globe to name more than 100 alien worlds. Now, I spoke to John Strachan, part of the international organising group for the competition, and I started off by asking him what the IAU's Name Exo Worlds campaign was all about. 
So basically, the International Astronomy Union decided to run this uh, name ExoWorlds uh, campaign, partly because, uh, it, it, I don't know if you knew, it was 100 years since we were set up last year. So it was a 100th birthday. It was part of a 100-year birthday celebrations. And it was for a good idea to to uh, promote astronomy throughout the different countries of the world. And uh, and and uh, to give people in those countries the opportunity to promote it themselves, so the astronomy societies or the schools or colleges that would get involved, they would be able to uh, take part in the campaign and we'd be able to promote astronomy. Because obviously the International Astronomy Union, is, its main goals are the safeguard and the promotion of astronomy throughout throughout the world and throughout all the countries. And we wanted to be as inclusive as possible to include as many countries as we possibly could in this uh, in this campaign. And uh, we, we managed to get over a hundred countries in the end to give us names, which was which was a big success. So it was truly international campaign. And it was and from the IEU IEU it was pretty international. The project manager Eduardo Penteado, he was Brazilian. And then we had on the on the steering committee, we had good people from Spain, from America, from France and and, uh, and Japan and different countries throughout the world on, on the on the steering committee. The UK was one of the countries that um that named uh one of the one of these AXO worlds. Um what was the the name chosen from the UK? Okay, so so the one of, one of the things that was important and what we stressed it wasn't a rule, but what we stress, what we want to have, and culture we want to have, is that the countries would be able to n- name things after indigenous names for the countries. It was United Nations Indigenous uh, Languages Year last year as well, which which dovetailed into that quite nicely. So, uh, so we're I'm quite happy that the United. The, the winning names for the United Kingdom were, ch- were chosen from the Manx Gaelic language, and uh, they, they they came from they were chosen. And the other thing that was important was to get young people involved in the proposals. And uh, for the United Kingdom, that was a primary school was involved, Conkey Berry, who who proposed the names, uh, and the, and the names were uh, Glowas, which means shine, and uh, for the star and. Uh, Kunlak, which means orbit for the exoplanet. So those were those were the names. And there's a nice link there between the star shines and the exoplanet Kunlak orbits around mm-hmm. the star. So mm, that's a nice link, isn't it? Yeah. That was a nice link. So so as, as that was another important thing, as well as the name of the, the star and the planet, we wanted a theme so that would describe I could describe it like this, or there were lots of other people to describe. It would give us the opportunity to to be able, if more exoplanets were found around the system, then we could we could we could name the exoplanet new exoplanets based on these themes. Oh, I see. So, yes, yeah, so it, it could be it can be continued on, and it could have a th- that theme can kind of carry on uh, throughout. So yes, so yes, yeah, research. So it, yeah. So th- this was for WASP thirteen was the actual system, uh, but we we named we named the, the star and the planet and and. And the, the, for each country, the the, the star that w- and planet was assigned was a, was a star that was visible in the that country with a small telescope. Oh, that's nice. So you can look, you can look at what's pretty, and you can look at the star. You can see it with a small telescope. And I'm checking it out with a small telescope and, and sit and see it in the in the uh, night sky. Oh, that's really so, good. Quite a few proposals came in from the the UK, didn't they? I think there were thousands of original proposals, and they were whittled down. By the, the the UK National Committee down to ten, and uh, but, 
being uh, being being included uh, they included uh, the type, one of them was the types of stones in Stonehenge. So the blue stones and the Saracen stones were, were some of the names. And, and there were plenty of others. Some, some were named after mountains. I think one was Snowden. So there were lots of different uh, sets of names. And that's what you find. And as well, when people go and decide names and themes, they come up with all wonderful and very varied themes that you probably wouldn't think of yourself to name to names and planets after, but which are which have cultural and, and national significance for that country. How is this different to the way exoplanets are usually named? Right, so exoplanets are usually named uh, basically we take the name of a star and then uh, the, the star is sort of I give an example, HD one eight nine seven double three is the name of a star. Not very interesting, but it's a name. It's from a Henry Draper catalogue, and then you put an A after it, and that would stand for the star. And and then the first exoplanet detected around it would have a B, a small uh, lowercase B, and then next one would be C, D, E, F, and that's how they would be named. So these a lot of these names aren't particularly memorable, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is one which is a very efficient way of naming them because you, know, you can name all, name all the planets very quickly, but it's 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 they're not a lot of them aren't that memorable. So uh, what's happened? Uh, so if we, if we have the opportunity to give them uh, you know name, proper names after after things, then they'll be more memorable. And and uh, the amateur astronomy community can use them, and and professional astronomers astronomers will use them as be able to use them as well and refer to them so that's it that's part of that's part of your um your research um is it um your kind of day job as it were is you're involved in um yes. exoplanet discoveries i, I work on research in search for exoplanets and the characterization of them mainly using a high resolution spectroscopy and the radio velocity method and uh Take them and uh, then uh, then uh, analyze, basically analyze the data and and uh, help to detect them and, and to carry and I've written a number of algorithms to uh, help characterize the planets. Right in in ter- in terms of um, atmos- atmosphere or in, in or on a kind of um, in a, on a terms of the density and and uh, you know what what their material they're made of that kind of thing. Well, that's right. Get, 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 getting towards the area, I've, I've written algorithms which allow you, when, when the planet transits in front of a star, you have a particular wave which, uh, which is, uh, which uh, you look at, you see the light curve, which is from photometry. I, you can look at that through spectroscopy, and when the planet passes in front of a star, it causes a star, distortion in the spectral lines, and I'm able to, I am able to, to track that distortion as it goes across, as the planet across the star, and uh, Determine uh, determine the whether the, the orbits aligned with the with star or not based on the spin of the star, and and uh, I and I can also and I can I'm also working on uh, algorithms to do with the noise on stars because one of the biggest problems we have uh, with detecting planets is is but is with radio velocity method is is that the stars some of the stars are quite noisy and at the moment algorithms to track star spots as they go across the stars and uh, this causes a radial velocity shift in the in the signal and be, and try to remove that signal so I can remove any of these signals from these star spots which could potentially be mistaken for our planets. Oh, I see. So when you say when you say noise, that's the kind of you know, you're not you're talking. You know, noise in kind of radio. When you're listening to the radio, it's kind of that. 
you know interference and it's kind of that all that fuzzy stuff but when you're when you're looking for exoplanets noise is is sun is star spots or well, or yeah activity it could be it's you could have rand you have noise as in white noise which is what you hear which is the random fuzz but noise could be noise could be structured as well so it could have a structure like a periodic signal but it could correspond to some activity on the star it could be pulsating or a spot grounder or something which will cause that signal which may may imitate what uh, what uh, what 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 the, the velocity signature from a from a planet is so it's so noise is anything that's not, not a planet signal so far as I'm concerned. However, some people's noise is other people's information. So other people are interested in studying the activity of stars and that are really are really are really interested in these signals. So and that that is that is their signal. So it depends on how you're looking at the system and what you want to get from it. Yeah. So so your the algorithms you've developed help to um isolate um you know passages of of actual um exoplanets uh, are we is uh, is research at a stage um yet where we can determine um conditions on these exoplanets or is it is it is it still at the stage where we're actually kind of you know di- uh, filtering out the noise and finding in finding these worlds yeah i mean but we're we're, we're still we're at the early stages we are able it depends on the if the planet uh, transits uh, transits and it's got a strong enough signal that you can actually detect a Doppler shift then you can work out the full mass of the planet from the second from the secondary transit because as the planet goes behind the star you get you get a signal so you, you get this you get this a second dip and from that you can you can get an estimate of what the temperature of the of the planet profile of the planet is and uh, from from uh, transit spectroscopy, which is uh, during the transit, you you can you, you can detect some of the molecules in the in the in the in the, in the, in the atmosphere of the star. But it's, we're at we're at the early, we're at the early stages, really. We're, we're, not, we're not at the stage we we're, we're not we we are not at the stage yet where we can say what these planets actually look like from our data. You know, actually look like you know, all the pictures you see of exoplanets on the on the on 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 the you know on the TV on the magazines and that are all manufactured and made up, but uh, artist impressions. But I'm sure eventually we'll get there. When the first exoplanet was found um, around 30 years ago, and since then over 4,000 uh, have been discovered, and um, that number continues to double uh, roughly every two and a half years. Um, do you think we'll get to a point where we 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 won't be able to carry on giving proper names to these planets. Well, yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I mean, we were only naming planets that are around fairly bright stars here, so we're the number of stars we're looking at. But but you're right. There's there's probably there's, there's probably planets around most stars, a lot of stars anyway. So I mean, you're gonna we'll end up finding millions of these. Or even billions, eventually billions of these planets, you know, as time goes on. So we're not going to be able to give, well, probably names to them all. I don't. Well, 
Well, we're going to have the designations and numbers to them, but I don't know. As the thing is, as as plants and that become in, my view is as as uh, systems have become interesting to us, a lot of work goes on to them, and maybe we'd want to give them names. Then, you know, we, we, these systems we talked, we uh, name X worlds are close to us, so they're interesting. They're bright from bright stars, so the stars are already quite bright, and uh, we could be, it's, that's quite useful to give them names. And uh, and as as time goes on, we'll we'll give them. A few, I'm sure, will be giving names to things. Uh, I mean, you know, in the United Kingdom, we have lots of street. We have lots of streets. <laughs> we give them all names. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just sure that that's uh, that that probably end up being the sort of thing we do if uh, astronomers want to do that and people want to do that. As and it become it become more and more interesting as we find out more and more about the planets and what they're like. Then, then, then at the moment, a lot of the names are. We're naming them after places, you know, or, or something about the Earth. But in the future, we might name them about some characteristics that these planets actually have, you know, that are very unique to them or we haven't seen before. We'll name them after that, that whatever they may be. So the, the actual naming process may change over time as well, I see. Sure. Great. John, thank you very much for talking to us. No problem. That was John Strachan. There are a load of great names on that list, so we thought we would take a minute to go over some of our favourites. Well, I was uh, interested in seeing what uh, Ireland came up with, and uh, they were tasked with naming the uh, yellow dwarf star um, HATP36 uh, and the exoplanet that orbits around that. Uh, the the star, star is found in the constellation Canis Venatici, uh, and the star name that they gave was uh, Turin, and the exoplanet was Bran, and these, are, um, these come from... Uh, Irish mythology, basically. Uh, Turin was the aunt of the Irish uh, warrior Finn McCool, um, kind of probably the most famous of the kind of uh, big uh, Celt- Celtic warriors uh, in Irish mythology. Turin was, was turned into a hound um, by, by a fairy who was jealous because Turin had married her former lover. And while she was a hound, um, she gave birth to two of her sons, Bran and uh, Skulan. Uh, so they were kind of dogs born um as a result of that. So, uh, yeah, the uh, star was uh, named uh, Turin and the exoplanet was named Bran as a result. Um, and Poland caught my attention. Um, they've gone for the orange dwarf star, BD plus 14 4559, in the constellation of Monoceros with its exoplanet. The names of characters associated with the Polish science fiction writer Stanislaw Lem who's a national hero, hero of Poland. Um, while the star is called Perks, fictional character from his Tales of Perks the Pilot, the exoplanet is fittingly called Solaris, named after the writer's famous 1961 novel about an ocean-covered exoplanet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went looking for one that I thought had a particularly nice story, and I came across uh, exoplanets named by Chile. Um, so they had... HD 164604. You can see why they needed new names, these stars, Um, (laughs) which is a dwarf star in Sagittarius. And theirs were all named after mythology to do with the sea around the southern islands of Chiloé. So the star is named Pinkoya, who is a female water spirit uh, in the southern oceans. And she 
collects up the drowned sailors and brings them to Caluche, uh, which was the name of the planet. Um, and Caluche is a large ghost ship which sails across the sea and it's where these drowned sailors can go and live the rest of their afterlife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, And a lot of African countries also got in on the um, campaign. Um, Nigeria's selection um, caught my eye. Uh, Nigeria's selection was um, the planet HD uh, 43197b around a yellow dwarf star in the constellation of Canis Major. Um, And the star name chosen was Amadioha um, and the planet name is Equiano. These are historical or mythological figures of Nigeria who stand for justice and human dignity. Um, Amadioha is the god of thunder in the mythology of the Igbo people of southeastern Nigeria, and Equiano was an 18th century Nigerian writer and abolitionist who fought to eliminate the slave trade. Mm. So those are just a few examples um, and our favourites, uh, but you can look at all 112 names for yourself at nameexoworlds.iau.org. Now it's time for our stargazing tip of the month. During the first half of February, you should be able to spot the nearest planet to the sun, Mercury, in the evening sky. To see the planet, you'll want a flat vantage point with a clear view to the west-southwest horizon. Once you're sure the sun has gone down, as you don't want to damage your eyes, look for the bright planet Venus towards the southwest horizon. It should be fairly easy to spot. If you look below this, closer to the horizon, you should see another point of light. That's Mercury. The planet is best seen in the first 10 days of the month. Though the planet will appear higher in the sky in later days, the planet's waning, which means it will appear dimmer in the night sky. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about the discovery of Pluto in the February issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take an in-depth look at everything you need to know to get started in astronomy, tell you all the details of the InSight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year Awards 2020, and delve into the science hidden inside the changing shape of the aurora. That's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonder of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. If you have any or questions or comments for us here at Radio Astronomy, they can always contact us on Twitter at Sky at Night Mag, on Facebook, or via email at contactus at skyatnightmagazine.com. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night Magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.